Um, I, I want to ask this delicately, but you know, you played Jesse Metcalf's uh, you know friend. You played Jay Ryan's uh, friend. At what point in time did you realize that Hollywood didn't see you as the leading man? Oh, um, probably, probably when I, um, probably when I got the part on Law and Order: Criminal Intent, and I okay. I was playing Lulu, who was second string to a character named Chops, who yeah. was the the actor that played Telly in uh in kids i don't know if you remember the kids the movie he was the uh, yeah. lead of kids and um he's a decent looking good guy but he's not a leading man and i was playing yeah. second string to him i knew that also right when i was meeting my uh my manager and uh, vic and sandy uh vic kept comparing me to um i was not a, as big i was much thinner i was not again not as uh bearded as i was as i am now but he kept comparing me to uh norm from cheers he's like you could be he's like i see you succeeding in uh, comedy and tv that's your that's your doorway and that's where i feel like a manager helps is like there's so many different platforms and and, and doorways into this career and into a career that to have a manager that says I really see you as a recurring character or a series regular on a TV show, comedy, yeah. um, and saying, okay, I'm not gonna try to get in every door. I'm just gonna try to get in this one door. And that's what the pilot was. That was the first comedy pilot. My first thing I booked for big time was The Law and Order. That was more of a drama, but I feel like he used that as a, you know, He's got a sense of humor. He's got a comic look, and yet he can also do this stuff. Yeah. Um, and I've always kind of prided myself on that range. Like, good at a lot of things, um, still not great at any one thing, you know. Uh, but good enough to get work in both. Yeah. No, you're 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 much better than good enough. I've seen you in a lot of uh, in a lot of projects. Not Beauty and the Beast until this you know yeah, this yeah. morning, but yes. uh, you're you're definitely good. I would um, say I'm not. A, I'm neither the beauty nor the beast. I think that's a fair statement. I, I would subscribe to that to, to that as well. Yeah, um, most people would, right? Although my kids tend to think that uh, that I certainly have a part of beast in me uh, quite uh, quite more often than I think I have. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, then uh, again, you 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 know you did your run. Uh, it was uh, it was a great uh, series. You did a bunch of stuff after that. I just. You know, yeah. I wanna I wanna dive into into a few things because again, as as a Jewish New York kid uh, growing up, you probably watched Seinfeld, and then you get a chance to do uh, curb your enthusiasm. You know what what was that like? Because to me, that would be like, okay, I made it. I don't care what else happens now. I'm here with Larry David. Yeah, what the I think the craziest thing about that. So I got that audition. Um, obviously I had a resume. I, I had, yeah. I, I don't know if I did Life Unexpected yet, but I, it was around that time, either right before or right after Life Unexpected that I did Curb Your Enthusiasm. And my, uh, my brother is a teacher in LA and was teaching one of Jeff Garland's kids, right? So I had come into contact with Jeff cause he buddied up to my brother, uh, being from 
Chicago and my brother from New York and sports fans. He's a Cubs fan. My brother's a diehard Mets fan. We were Mets fans. So yep. um, a little fun rivalry and someone, my brother's down to earth and he's, he, he's very friendly. Um, and a lot of the teachers, I mean, the parents tend to gravitate towards him because he's like that type of a teacher um, and great with kids as well. And so he um, comes back. We were living together at the time and he's like, so Jeff, Jeff's going to get you an audition. And he said, he's going to cast you in something. And, you know, like, that's what he told me Jeff said he was going to do. And, um, and, 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 he's, and my brother, Jeremy, is like, you've never seen him act. How do you know? Like, he's like, I could tell. I could tell. So um, anyway, I get the audition. And um, he, obviously, I got a little help because I wasn't in that comedy improv world. At the time, I was doing dramas and other things and movies, indie films and commercials. And so um, when I went to the audition, all the part called for is on the breakdown is a waiter. Yeah. That's all you get, right? So you're going in for a waiter. You show up at the audition and there are there's probably like eight slips of paper this narrow. And it says, waiter. You pick the one that says waiter at the top. It says, you are Larry, Larry, Larry's waiter, um, and he's eating with a friend, and then he wants to know what the friend tipped. That's all it said, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, okay. And they had like, I would say 10 of each, and I just put it back down because I'm like, do I need to memorize that? Like, I know what it is. So, and I'd done that. I'd been a bartender, I'd been a busboy, yeah. Um, I had served, I've been a server, so I understood what that required. And so it was just a matter of hanging with Larry and not kind of falling on my face and making his jokes better or being, being a, a, a foe to him. Um, and so I walked in there, he's sitting there to, you know, I'm, I'm about to improv with him jeff's there which is also awkward he's like hey what's up um and i i don't remember if he whispered to me then or afterwards whether um he's like i got you the audition but it's larry's decision i can't do anything else after that i think he did that he caught me afterwards but basically larry's like you're my waiter i'm sitting with a friend and you're i want to know the tip he's like don't give it to me he's like don't don't give it to me. Um, yeah. So I just came up with cordial customer service reasons why I wouldn't share the tip. And then he starts doing, he's like, I'm not comfortable with this. Like, you know, he wants me to scratch my face. He wants, and this was in the audition. So we're doing it and like people are laughing and he's, he keeps on trying to do different things. And um, he's like, oh, okay. Was it higher or lower than, and then like we, we go through the whole thing, not everything from the scene, but it, we, we start debating it and he's like, um, and we go back and forth and I still don't give it. And he was like, you know, kind of staring at me laughing and he's like, hey, that's great. He's like, great. Um, and I, I walk out and I get the part and <clears throat> I show up to set and people start talking about all the Seinfeld characters that that's their first episode. And I see on the call sheet, Jason Alexander 
and Michael Richards. Oh my and I'm God. like, oh my God. <laughs> he's have his friend that he's having lunch with is Jason Alexander and Michael Richards. And I'm like, oh my God. And even before I'm doing the scene, I'm sitting at lunch because I it was a late, I mean, they had other things going on there. I'm sitting at lunch and everyone's regaling Michael Richards there, right? And I'm like, oh my God, like I'm doing a scene with Kramer and George Costanza. Like, I'm like. Talk about the Mets. What? Talk about the Mets. I know, right? Exactly. I know. Well, if the only thing missing was Keith Hernandez. Um, but uh, I, what was really funny is, so, you know, it's improv. I'm wearing waiter gear. And there was a lot of, like, people, extras, background, all that stuff, other waiters. And yeah. it looks like a real restaurant. It's not like, it doesn't look like a set. They have two cameras running. You do a lot of takes. You do a lot of improv. Um, Jeff Garland showed up just to kind of be there for me, which was cool. And um, But I, I get into this. So I'd done the scene with uh, um, Jason Alexander where I'm sitting in the back waiting and I have to come back and keep checking on them to, to get the tip from him ultimately, the first tip. Um, yeah. And so um, do that. And I really wasn't there for the scene, but I'm standing back there laughing and knowing that I have to come in on a certain cue and not laugh in the scene and beat the waiter um, was hard. And then we finally get to the Michael Richards thing and I keep bringing him green tea. Like he, he wanted green tea. And he, he's talking to me, and I don't know if he was doing it as an actor, but he was talking to me as if I was the real waiter. Like, wow. you know, um, and and then we start getting into like a side conversation about like, you know, where I went to school, like what I do for a living, right? Like, um, I was like, I'm a waiter, but I'm, I'm a teacher during the day. I just don't make enough money. Like I start making shit up, like <laughs> in the improv mindset of like, you know, I went to UCLA, I went to film school, but, you know, uh, I, I figured I have to, you know, pay back student loans and, and I'm making stuff up totally. And he's talking to me like the waiter and he keeps telling me, he's like, Can we get like um, a little more green tea, a little more honey, you know? And I'm like, sure. Like, I'm like, I, I was like acting like his waiter. And I don't know if he was doing, I never know if he was doing it on purpose or he thought I was the actual waiter. <laughs> and I was like, dude, awesome. it was like, it was all post his his meltdown. So yeah. Yeah. I don't know if he had been around too many people or on too many sets since then. So he was an uh, interesting yeah. guy. I love, I mean, love Kramer, but yeah. interesting, interesting actor. That's, that's amazing. Um, another childhood dream. And again, I'm living mine yeah. through yours, uh, but you just got to do uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, recently. You know, yeah, yeah. all of us want to. All of us want to be superheroes. All of us want to be on the Marvel, you know, or DC set. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, were, you were dressing up as, as Superman. So, what was that like? Uh, did, did the kid in you say, "Where am I, and why am I here?" Well, it's funny because I was, as a kid, I was a superhero fan. Yeah. Right. I loved Underoos. I loved. The cartoons, I love the Superman movies, Christopher Reeve, yeah. Reeves, um, and, um, or Christopher Reeve, uh, and Batman with 
Michael Keaton. Like, I loved all those movies. I was, you know, uh, so I grew up not necessarily on the comic books, but I grew up as a superhero fan. Um, and Cape Crusaders more so than um, people with superpowers. Like, I was even into The Greatest American Hero when I was a kid. Like, it was a little before my time, but, you know, I, I was past my bedtime, so my dad, my parents would let me stay up to watch it. I think it was on at 8 uh, in the early 80s or sometime in the mid-80s. But great. Um, love that kind of comedy and that, you know, Wonder Woman, Shazam. Yeah. All that stuff. I, I love the movie, film, and TV and cartoon versions of superheroes, but didn't really read comics. Um, so I'd always been pining after like a couple of, you know, I had a, a audition for Doom Patrol that I was like, oh, I'd love to get this, like, you know, be in the DC world. Um, I had a potential audition that they changed the character, so I never went in for either Arrow or Flash. And I was like, I, it was like, I'm looking to get back to like Toronto or Vancouver. There's such, you know, yeah. nostalgia in those two cities because I lived there for a while. Um, yeah. But I wound up booking Lucifer and then uh, yeah. a year or two later, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. getting the check marks off of the DC and, and the Marvel Universe. Um, yeah. And the only, the only thing I regret about um, uh, the, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Bit. They're very similar characters, ironically. So I was like, make sure these characters aren't too much alike because then it's like, um, then that's my thing. That's my shtick yep. uh, to be a Jewish kid from Brooklyn. Um, but I didn't really get to do any scenes with the agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the team. Um, even though I saw them around and um, yeah. I was invited with, along with the rest of the cast to the table read. Um, mm -hmm. And not knowing that this was the last season um, that I was participating in, I felt like they were extra celebratory. And, you know, it was one of the best, most fun table reads I had ever been in with all the cast around, even the ones that weren't in it, um, reading and laughing and um, just supporting everyone. And like uh, specifically Henry Simmons, um, his his daughter goes to my brother's school, like small world. And like when you teach at a private school in LA, a lot of your, your yeah. students have parents who are in the industry. So uh, I've crossed paths with a lot of parents from my brother's school. Um, and so Robert Patrick on Scorpion um, a couple of years ago, but anyway, so Henry Simmons was really, he's like the nicest, sweetest, biggest guy I've ever been. <laughs> he's huge. Um, but he's like, a gentle giant, you know, um, and also so cool, like, um, and really cool. And when I've seen him at like school events afterwards, he's like, I saw the episode, man, you were great, great job. I'm like, thanks, dude. I mean, I hadn't seen it. So um, yeah. he was, you know, he's just a really good guy. And um, Lily Henstridge and, and Jeff Ward were really also on, on set, but not in my scenes, but they were mm -hmm. just really, like warm, like I was doing, I was just eating lunch, kind of getting my lunch by myself and they came up to me. It's like, hey, what's up? How you doing? Like, how are your scenes going? Like, I was like, what? 
like this is weird this is like i'm not even in scenes with you but you're being really cool and really nice but um so yeah it was a great experience um also with lucifer those guys on that set um were you know amazing i had worked with a couple before and so that made it easier um but it was it was those people were really really cool set really cool writers directors and crew to be around and it's amazing i think all of the people give the sentiment that you were asking about working on those shows whether it's dc or marvel knowing that they're basically living out their childhood dreams no matter what part of the crew or cast they're on they're being a part of bringing to life these stories and you know what are the greek gods for americans you know um, modern-day Greek gods, these superheroes that we make the most money, make the most entertainment, whether it's animation, you know, live-action films or TV shows, and keep entertaining the masses, you know? That's awesome. Uh, what's happening with your own uh, series? Uh, what's what's happening with uh, Kinetics? Uh, did it ever, I, I know you had, uh, I think a couple of years ago, you had something going on. Did that ever materialize? So the kinetics um, was uh, just to, for the people that don't know, it's a, a superhero team um, of kids in high school uh, mm -hmm. that are uh, students by day and a team of superheroes by night. Uh, but in, in our story, the, the characters and the kids all have chronic illnesses and uh, disabilities um, or chronic diseases. So being a type one diabetic myself and um, knowing people uh, on the spectrum, autistic, autistic spectrum, uh, ASD as it calls, autism, autism spectrum disorders. Um, and uh, a friend of mine that I would work out with in this class uh, was born with no legs. So from the, the people I was seeing that were superheroes in real life like her, um, and my nephew and and people in my world that I looked up to in the diabetes community as well. Um, I'm always one to kind of put the positive, you know, be an optimist and saying, turn your perceived weakness into your your ultimate strength. Um, and so that's what the show is. And so we were pitching it as a TV show or an animated series. Um, and that and this is how stories evolve, I believe. It evolved into trying to pitch it as a live action series, um, writing scripts, submitting to uh, TV workshops and through YouTube and Sundance that we came close on a couple. And then um, it evolved back into the comic book essential form because it became clear that all these shows and TV um, series and movies were comic books first. and and um, intellectual property or literary um, first. And from that success and audience built out the universes, um, the cinematic universes as they stand now. And so we did a Kickstarter for a comic book, raised $11,000, created almost 6,000 comic books and have completely, almost all distributed all those comic books on our own. Um, I work with the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, so JDRF. Uh, I got extra ones of the character 
that's based on me and the kids I've met um, with di type one diabetes called Cybetes. The character based on my friend Jen uh, is called Deadlift. She has superhuman arm strength. Um, there's a character called Aftershock that's very similar to Quake in uh, in the Agents of Shield universe, Marvel universe. But yep. she's uh, she has the power of vibration force because she um, she's voiceless and she she can't hear. She's deaf. Um, so she's part of the hearing impaired community and uses vibrations to um, uh, against her enemies. And so part of what we were doing is not denying the disability and replacing it like the our character with no legs didn't get new legs. Right, because um, Jen's story, uh, if you're familiar with her, her name's Jen Bricker. You should look her up. She has a book that um, uh, you you know you should definitely read. But she is a gymnast, um, and early on in her life was given the option for prosthetic legs. And at that point, even as a kid, she felt encumbered by the legs. She felt like they were an impediment, and chose not to to wear the prosthetic legs, and has lived an amazing you know blessed life uh and uh, she's a motivational speaker she's an aerialist she's an amazing person that didn't need prosthetic legs to make her feel whole and so that was important for us to give these characters superpowers like in, for example the the character with autism um on the spectrum uh is um brainstorm because he is a an amazing artist. He's able to see something and draw it to its exact form. But he's also imaginatory. He's imaginative, right? So he'll draw dragons a lot and he'll draw all these like medieval weapons. And so his power is, you know, kind of using his mind powers to bring those, those drawings to life and use them as weapons against his enemies. And so their weaknesses also don't deny their their condition. So like my character needs his pump and glucometer and, and his uh, continuous glucose meter charged. So he needs battery power, but he also needs to make sure his blood sugar doesn't drop too low because then he won't, he'll be too weak to fight his enemies. Um, mm -hmm. So we, we transitioned it into comic books and currently we realized for the demographic that we're, um, that we're looking at middle readers um mm -hmm. we're looking at uh, a graphic novel and the artist my friend and co-writer dave malbach and uh my other co-writer josh taub and i um actually dave has taken the scripts that we have written and the stories that we have written we have written already and is compiling it into a graphic novel that's more geared towards um early mid readers so like you know, I'll give you an example, Captain Underpants or Dogman, those books that are, you know, kind of popular in that age group are yep. um, a model for what we're going to do with the kinetics going forward. So within the next year or two, um, I'm hoping that we could put that out and um, either pitch it to publishing companies or, you know, again, do a Kickstarter to distribute it ourselves. I mean, graphic novel is going to be 150, 200 pages. So it's going to be a lot longer and a lot more you know money to produce but um i'm hoping 
that we can get connected with a distributor and um, go from there. But Dave is busy doing all the drawings now. It's awesome. It's wonderful. It's a great idea. I, I certainly hope that it gets uh, the attention it deserves. Um, yeah. I, I think it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, You've mentioned uh, you know having uh, type one a few times. So from the yeah. acting perspective, um, how how does it uh, kind of manifest itself on set? Because uh, on set uh, it's it's crazy. It's 12, 16 hour days. It's it's ridiculous. How do you deal with that, and how do you make sure that uh, you're good to go? Right. So as an actor, um, mm -hmm. physically, emotionally, uh, vocally. You have to be trained, warmed up, and ready to yeah. go the distance, to, to do any number of things, either if it's a stunt or if it's a physical you know, ailment or vocally to be able to, to play the full range of your voice so that your breath and your voice are not stopping the emotions that you're feeling inside from coming out. And you know, some of that's done with stretching and tent, you know, you know, exercises that you learn throughout your life. And so to be at the top level uh, as an actor, you, it's almost as important, if not more, because you're also expressing emotions, to be at a, a level that's similar to a professional athlete. So mm -hmm. knowing that and, and kind of looking up as a type 1 diabetic to professional athletes that have type 1 diabetes, like, there's a hockey player, Max Domi, that is type 1 diabetic. And so when he's on the ice and he has to perform at the same level as everyone else that doesn't have type 1 diabetes, he has to make sure his numbers, his levels, and his energy is at the place that is going to give him the best opportunity to perform at the highest level. And so as a diabetic actor, I have to do the same thing. Um, luckily, technology and research and um, uh, funding has gotten management of diabetes to the point where I can wear an insulin pump that I've worn for about 20 years or over 20 years. That is a device that pumps insulin into your body automatically. And then when you eat meals or, or a snack, you adjust it or you give yourself a dose based on how many carbohydrates you're, in, you're eating. And then the most recent and probably what's been touted is like the most revolutionary um, device that has happened since the you know invention or creation of insulin as a product so that mm -hmm. diabetics weren't going to die and that they could survive. Yeah. Continuous glucose monitors, CGMs, are devices that you're starting to see commercials for now. Um, mm -hmm. Dexcom is one of them. I use uh, an in-light sensor from Medtronic. Um, there's Tandem. There's a couple of different models out there, but what it does is at every point in the day, you're able to look down at, at your pump or your device and see where your blood sugar level is. Um, it doesn't, it's not in your veins. It's kind of tested through interstitial fluid, but mm -hmm. you could tell what your blood sugar is at every level at any point, um, and then where it's trending. So if it's going up, you see it going up. There's an arrow going up or a graph going up. Um, if it's going down, and it's either one arrow going up or two hours. That's, if it's going two hours, it's going up a lot. If it's two hours down, it's going down a lot. One arrow down and up, not so much. So 
having those things as added things that I put on silent because if they go off, they could ruin a take. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now I have mine on silent. So you haven't heard it yet, um, but I have it on vibrate. So sometimes I'll, I'll get a, I was like, do I have a call or is my blood sugar off? Um, so yeah, it, it's having those things, um, having a couple people on set aware of this situation, even though I'm a public advocate and an ambassador for yeah. type one diabetes and the JDRF and diabetes in general. Um, I don't go to set and announce to the entire crew and cast that I have type one. I don't hide it, but it's really no one's business unless we have a conversation and it comes up, but it's essential on a a set like agents of shield or a set that I'm only going to be on for one day, like curb to tell the first AD um, or the people that are handling me, the, the ADs, the AD squad, assistant directors that, if at some point I need to up my blood sugar, it could drop. I'm a diabetic. That an apple juice, having an apple juice handy, will be the best solution. And so I always make sure early on in productions to tell those people that could do that to give me or to have apple juice handy because specifically apple juice for me that's just a choice. But it's better than trying to chew something and get it out of your teeth for a take. I could chug it really quick and it's a, it's a clear liquid. So it's not going to give me phlegm as an actor um, and get in the way of me speaking. Um, and it's not going to get in my teeth uh, or be a certain color. That's going to, you know, if it's grape juice. It, your tongue's going to be purple. If it's orange juice, you, you might get a little, you know, you might, you might get a little phlegmy. I just reminded myself of my dad right there. <laughs> Well, listen, as as an uh, as a waiter, you know, you could just uh, use it as a part of the scene. You can be drinking apple juice. I think that'll be a very interesting acting choice that could lead uh, somewhere in improv. Right. While I'm serving, uh, while I'm serving. Right. <laughs> Maybe next time. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I feel like, again, as an actor um, in general for type one diabetic actors and non-diabetic actors, to be aware of your body, your tension, your voice, your instrument, right? Um, my wife's an acting coach, Colleen Basis, and she talks a lot about um, breath and, and awareness um, and presence even before you start acting so that when you do start the scene or open your mouth to speak a line that at least you as a person are aware of where you are at the moment and then you could kind of step in and and say i'm here where does the character need to be or do i need to change anything and um is there any tension that's going to get in my way as an actor or an actress to to doing the best job as an actor in the scene, as the character. Um, and so diabetes is just an extension of that and managing it as best I could, you know, as I have now, it's it's never really gotten in the way. Um, so knock, knock on, on, yes, knock on wood. Put, put, put. It's, it's, the other, it's the other Jewish thing that we do is put, put, put. Uh, oh, yeah. 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 
Gotcha. Well, um, um, thank you for for sharing that. Uh, um, you know, I know uh, from the I think the only exposure that I've had uh, in terms of uh, professional athletes, I think Jay Cutler, who used to be a quarterback for yep. the Chicago, you know, uh, also had it. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, media talked about it for uh, for a day, and then you know uh, he just went around uh, doing his job or not doing it, depending on you know who you talk to. At, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bears fans. There's you know there's major league pitchers, there's uh, baseball players that are, there's basketball players. I would say basketball is uh, and hockey are probably the toughest. Hockey is the toughest just because um, there's such high intensity and you can't always get off the floor like that's or the 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 ring because you have to get there has to be a whistle so if you're on a a line that is kept on the ice for a long time and you're not able to get off um and you have like the technology the devices that you're wearing and they're all under your pads you know any any one point those devices could get jarred loose by a check or you know, football players too. Um, you know, Jay Cutler, as long as he doesn't get sacked, I guess he's fine. But um, he, he was probably sacked more. <laughs> he's probably sacked more than most yeah. quarterbacks. But uh, um, yeah. I'm a Giants fan, so sorry. I know you're a Bears fan. Listen, I, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm not a, you know, diehard. You mentioned the Mets. I'm a Cubs fan. I'm not offended. You know, it's, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, let's uh, let's get to our lightning round. So okay. you've done a ton of projects. You've been in a lot of sets. What was kind of the most uh, favorite of of the projects that you've been at? Wow! Oh my god, <clears throat> that's a tough. That's I mean, lightning rounds. It's like oh my god, it's, things slow down now. Um, that's you'll ask anyone in my life. I'm very slow and steady wins the race kind of guy. Um, okay. Even when leaving the house, I, I, it's a problem that, you know, I'm late to things and that's a, a constant struggle for me. But um, I do things slower than normal, but um, I'll try to be quick. I like to talk about this, this story because, mm-hmm. one, it's not on my resume. You can't see it on my reel. It's mm-hmm. um, an experience that um, I... That you you just can't see, and it's it, it's the intangibles of um, yeah. of being an actor, and you know, I guess expanding not expanding your resume, but just like putting yourself out there. That you know, more and more at a lot of these award shows and like bigger named actors, you start connecting the dots to experiences is <clears throat> experiences in your life yeah um so to an experience that i was like would be the the top i guess highlight of um my unknown acting creds um is i was it was narrowed down to me and two other actors to be uh to play katherine keener's son um in a a film called the ballad of jack and rose um initially at that point it was called rose and the snake but um or the rose and the snake i think but i think it's called the ballad of jack and rose so rebecca miller arthur miller's daughter directed it 
She wrote and directed this film um, with her husband as the lead role, and her husband is Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, so I had auditioned at an open call. Uh, my agent submitted me, but didn't get a response. My manager did. So I went to an open call. I did, I, you know, you know, kind of yeah. went from two angles. And, uh, mm -hmm. and from the, the open call was narrowed down and given a sides early in the day to come back at 6 p.m. that night to read for the casting director. And obviously the, the crew, you know, it was probably like 10 people. Um, yeah. And now uh, did that, felt good. Um, got a call from my managers that they want to see me, the, meet the director, Rebecca Miller, um, and bring you into the casting director's office. Um, and that there's a possibility that Daniel Day Lewis would be there reading with you. Um, and I'm like, I was actually, when I got that call, I was in the lobby of the actor studio in New York, um, having just uh, done session or done something rehearsal. Um, and was just like, holy effing shit. Um, and I was like, freaked out. I was in the city. I had to get home to like really work on my stuff. Um, and it was like, so it's this balance of like meeting your heroes and, and kind of like being able to try to work with your heroes. Like, you know, the, the, the goal of it, I had read with actors that I had recognized before, but this was the first time I was like reading with someone that was at that point, it was right when Gangs of New York had come out and he had made his return. He had won an Academy Award already. He was nominated for all these awards. And I was just like, I mean, this is like one of the greatest living actors and I'm about to to read with him. And I was like, I got to bring my, my A game, you know? Um, so two scenes, right? One scene was with the Catherine Keener character because that character is playing my mom. And um, she wasn't there, but Rebecca Miller, who was an actress as well, not only a director, read with, was reading with me. And then Daniel Day-Lewis was there. And... I mean, it must have lasted five, maybe 10 minutes that whole time, but it felt like I was in there for like 20 minutes. And, yeah. you know, to be sitting in the waiting room and have him walk in and know that that's what's about to happen with all the other two guys that you're competing against. And it was just like, well, good luck, guys. He's here, you know? Um, and we all go in. And uh, so I did the first scene. We read it again, did it a second time. and. Um, they were like, that was great. You want to read the second scene? Um, and, uh, I was like, yeah, sure. And I knew the second scene was a direct scene with, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's character. And so I played it and I, I, I felt like I did a pretty good job. Um, and, uh, at least I felt like I was able to hang a little, right? Um, yeah. he was so warm and kind and, um, and it, some point after we did the scene i had made them laugh or like we were talking about because i'd been out to la and they're new york people and we were kind of hating on la together saying like oh this it's crazy out there whatever um that we love new york better we are you know etc um and then there was a conversation about a jacket it said the kid always wore his jacket so the idea was that 
he would wear his jacket because his mom changed. They moved so much that he didn't want to take it off. Right. Mm. Um, he didn't want to get it settled down his roots in any place because they would always be leaving to go somewhere else. Um, and so I looked for that jacket to buy a corduroy jacket like that. And I couldn't find one. And I told them that story that I looked for one to get it. He's like, you can wear my jacket. And I'm like, no, I was like, no, I don't No, It's okay. Um, so <laughs> at, after the scene, we read the two scenes and they're like, um, they kind of look at each other. Like, you mind doing like a, a little improv? And I was like, uh, yeah, sure. I, I was like a kid. I was like, yeah, of course, of course, whatever. Um, playing it cool. Um, and then so we, we improv the scene for like five minutes uh, because I had read the script and knew the script. I was bringing up things left and right from the script, from the story. Um, he was trying to get me to, to bond with him and I was resistant. And, you know, finally it was very similar to the Larry David thing where he was trying to get me to tell him the tip. He was trying to get me to like, you know, go for pizza or get some ice cream with him or something. And he was like, what's your favorite flavor? Like, whatever it was. And I was like, the last thing I said was maybe, maybe, right? And they laughed. I made them laugh, right? And we ended as like, and then they kind of ended in a laugh. And it was like, I was like, did I just get this part? <laughs> um, but I didn't. Um, I was also a 25, 26-year-old kid trying to play a 17-year-old. Um, and the guy they cast was actually like 17 or 18. Um, and so that was frustrating for me, but at the same time, invigorating and reinforced pretty much all that I had studied in school and was working on as an actor, that given the circumstances that I was bound to find myself in, you know, whether it was Viola Davis or Claire Danes or, um, you know, people that I found myself with Harvey Keitel working with that I wouldn't be in so intimidated or enamored that it would distract me from doing my work. Um, okay. And to revere from afar, but respect from up close and respect enough to hang with them in the scene and to give them as much as they're giving you um, is more important than. Uh, you know, being able to say you're the biggest fan and, you know, getting that picture after you work with them and yeah. posting it on Instagram or something. That's important for me too, because it's like, you know, it's that relief of I did the scene, I'm done. Can we take a picture? But sometimes I've been too intimidated to do that. Um, yeah. But I feel like it, it was a good lesson early on um, before I had any real major credits that, um, if in that position that I was ready, um, and I could hang, um, and to, to be a member of the actor studio and to see people like that, to work with, you know, actor studio veterans, like again, Harvey Keitel, Al Pacino, Ellen, uh, Burstyn, Estelle Parsons, and, you know, people like that, that have won Academy Awards and have a laundry list of a career 40 50 60 years long and see them still working on their craft still perfecting it still not satisfied with 
the results that has given them a, a career as long as they have, those those are lessons that I take with me and keep with me and see finding their way into my own work uh, every time I work and um, trying to emulate them and, and trying to be my own actor, be my own version of that. Um, you know, I was thinking about a tool belt. It's funny, having a tool belt, right? Versus a toolbox. As an actor, you get enough. If you train and you take classes, you get enough to fill maybe a garage, right? You know, and out of that garage, there's stuff that works for you. You know, all these different techniques, all these different um, ways to approach the work to, you know, from the beginning, from the backstory, from the execution of it. And you put those in your toolbox. And then from that toolbox, for any one given role, character, audition that you need to do, you get to say, all right, I'll need the hammer for this one. I need a Phillips head screwdriver instead of a regular screwdriver. I need um, a, uh, a, a pliers, needle nose pliers, because there's, you know, this is a very subtle performance and I need to, you know, get in there right whatever it is and those are all things like whether it's meisner sensory work um improv uh you know classical shakespeare work like i know tim loves that stuff and um i do as well um but it's like those things you know for example classical work taught me to scan a script and make important the words that were important for the character what the character is going after so you look at a script and certain words pop out as the operative words that you need to know for classical work, for Shakespearean scansion to scan the text so that you, you can understand it and so the audience in front of you understands it because it's so different than the way we speak. But having those tools in my toolbox that I could take out at any time and put in my tool belt for any given role is like an essential part of the continuity of education as an actor um, and bringing all these things into your work and leaving the things that aren't useful or obstructive um, uh, out of the work. Um, you know, like I, I can't use sensory work for comedy sometimes because it's fun and games. I have to bring my true personality, my sense of humor into it. And if I get too far out of my kind of fun, smiley, happy-go-lucky personality, if I can't make my myself laugh, I can't, I'm not going to make anyone else laugh. So if I can't smile, then I can't make anyone laugh. And so that's important to me. Um, anyway, tool, toolbox, tool belt. So what, what are the most commonly used uh, pieces that you're employing in your tool belt uh, on these different projects? Um, Definitely the scanning of the text. So that I learned that, um, you know, looking at Shakespeare stuff. So Shakespeare used to only give each actor their own lines. That's why we call it their side of the script, sides, roles, right? right? So it's okay. used to be in roles. It wasn't in pages. So we yeah. write it all on the roll, and you would get your role. Um, mm -hmm. And so you would get the three and we practice. That's what we did in, in Doug Mostyn Shakespeare class in act, the actor studio drama school. We would get scenes where we only had our lines. So we had to memorize our lines 
and we got the three cue words that the other actor would give. So you had to listen, teaches you to listen, to hear those words. Um, and then it also taught you making decisions just based on your dialogue, how mm. a person says something, what they're saying, how they're saying it, um, whether, whether they're telling the whole truth, um, whether they're not saying something. You make decisions based on the way sentences are structured and how the words are used and what words are used. So nowadays you get the whole script, but yeah. that really helps with these Marvel and DC and secret projects because sometimes they're dummy sides or you don't get to read the whole script. Like with guest stars on TV, right. you don't read the whole script. You just get your sides and a breakdown of the character. So you have to infer what, the, what, what your character choices will be based on not knowing the rest of the story. Um, that helps a lot. Uh, my sensory stuff, because um, I ask a lot of questions and about where a character is emotionally, physically, mentally, what happens before that's, you know, character work of like, you know, what's the previous circumstances. Um, and uh, if I need to in, in, in inject any type of sensory work, is the character drinking alcohol, right? That's one, for example. Does the character have a trauma that he's talking about? How do, do I have that event? in my past or do I have to, you know, substitute an event for me or imagine an as if, like a magical as if, like, so that's the sensory work when it comes to like the emotional stuff. And then just getting to like the heart of what happens in each scene. And this goes to, to my work on set as well, because I give each scene a name. And that was Philip Seymour Hoffman on the inside, the, inside the actor studio said he names his scene almost like they're separate plays or separate um, movies or TV shows. So he'll write, um, this is the, um, this is, I'm going to curse here, but this is the fuck shit up scene, right? Um, sure. Or uh, this is, this is the winning the love of your life back scene. Um, you know, so I call them the blank scene. And so when I, I don't decide that title right away, I usually decide it towards the end of the time I have to prepare. Um, but this way, even right before I go in, I could look at the top of the script and say, scene one, this is, this is the getting, getting your feelings out scene. And this is the, um, the apology scene right? Um, yeah. As simple as that. And then going through a script when you shoot out of order, that yeah. pays off immensely because, and then you get creative with it because you, you, it can't always be the apology scene. Like it's the please, please, please. I'm so sorry, sorry, sorry scene. You know, you come up with weird names that make it unique to this character. And it's only the character and your perspective that inform those, those things. And so I'd say those three things, and I've also started um, when I have time. I use what a what what a teacher, Gene Lasco, used to do in um, in this class, and I use it in when I teach as well. Um, so it's five exercises that 
are all technical exercises, but you use the technical exercise to see what comes up mm-hmm. emotionally, intellectually, and, and choice-wise for the characters. So you say the same dialogue and the, the, four diff, the five different options are you say it as fast as you can and you see what that pulls out of you. You say it as slow as you can, like maybe like three to five seconds between words. So each word starts to take on a different meaning and more important meaning. Um, you say it as loud as you can. Um, and you say it as soft as you can. So the loud one really engages your full body. So when you shout and you get your breath activated, if you're yeah. feeling something underneath, it's coming out, right? Whether it's tears, anger, emotion, laughter, um, that's coming out. And then the softness stuff, it's like you say it without voice and without using your vocal cords. So it's a whisper like this. And so you close your eyes and it's more about when you say each word or each sentence, what you're feeling inside. You don't worry about how it's being presented outside. And then the yeah. fifth one is, which is tough, is better for stage because as, a, as people, we don't talk like this, you know, like you would on stage. We usually talk and shrug our shoulders and keep our arms at our sides or in our pockets or folded when we're in real life. So the physical one, you physicalize each word. So what that does for the stage is bring you out of your own mannerisms. It forces you to express. And I'm telling you, every time I do this, you find one or two things that you could bring at least back into the scene that that enrich the scene. And, the you know, so even if I'm saying the most important thing here is this word right it, you know and, and you just go from there um yeah. and so for like the stage it brings you out of your body and for tv and film where people don't do that a lot because they're being more naturalistic it allows you to physicalize it and gives you that freedom yeah. in one one way of the scene one version of the scene that you're allowed to physically express almost like you're you're expressing it to someone that can't hear you across a divide like a a bridge or you know a building like in a window um and then you do it again afterwards normally and those things live inside of you even if you don't move at all and it's very like buttoned up and subtle and very british or you know they you know repressed right it those things are there and if there's an emotion that comes out it might just come out to like a like that and then you'd stop like it could be that simple yeah this anyway. is great. this is great thank you for for sharing that i'm i'm shooting a scene tomorrow it's my first one uh you know during covid time um i i i've kind of started uh, going over it and i've done my uh my breakdowns but these are a lot of very good things that I'm going to start utilizing immediately, and we'll yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. We'll see how it plays. Uh, we'll see how it plays tomorrow. And you'll see how each one. You know, I don't. I try to use all of them when I have the time, but yeah. sometimes you you have to cherry pick 
what you think you need to kind of drum out of a scene to get out of your own way to find out what your instincts are telling you. Um, yeah, there's a, uh, my friend George Gallagher also does another technique where um, it's about trusting your instincts. It's a whole technique that you should look up. But um, uh, I've tried to incorporate that as well um, to get out of, because as an actor, you get an audition, you have a little time, you tend to think it through really quick, right? And make decisions really quick. And so when you're trying to like break out of the, your normal, in your normal meter, the way you talk, the way you think, the way you say certain phrases, um, it's a good technique. And it, the basic technique is he knows it better than I do, but it's basically looking down without really knowing the dialogue early on in actually rehearsal um, before you've made any decisions. Looking down, reading a sentence, kind of feeling how that sentence makes you, even when you memorize the lines too, how that sentence makes you feel, and then looking up and saying it, and not yeah. worrying about saying it in a certain way, but taking what you just felt about that, that line and yeah. saying it and putting it into the, the sentence, and then looking back down and not having any, you don't even have to say the whole sentence. You don't even have to say it ended at the period. Yeah. It, it helps you helps you memorize, but it also helps you um, learn to trust your instincts and learn to speak like a normal person and not an actor. Yeah, I, I I've heard of something similar. There's a book that I have on my bookshelf over there. It's called How Not to Act or How to Stop Acting. That's uh, it. Yeah. So that's that's what he was talking about. I'm like, this yeah. is great. I love it because it allows me to get out of my head and I can just connect to my emotional place at that time, which on the second time I'm going to do that line, it will be different. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. And yeah, yeah uh, I think, you know, um, talking to, uh, I don't know if it was Tim. It was not actually uh, Tim. It was uh, it was uh, Malachi, uh, Malachi Weir who was talking about Paul Giamatti. And he's yeah. saying, Paul is doing a scene. And then next time he's doing a, a take. Next time, it's very different. It's whatever he feels like, and he's he's playing with it. He allows himself that freedom of just playing and trying. So yeah. tomorrow, if I get an opportunity of of doing multiple takes, they are not going to be the same for sure because yeah. I want to explore and then let them decide which one they like. Yeah, totally. I mean, for me to being a series regular on a TV show, you're the continuity through the story. Besides the writers writing the arcs. Yeah. You're the continuity that carries that story through. Directors change every episode. You know, they do short-lived series that are six episodes where same writer and director do every episode, but that's a bit more rare. And mm -hmm. usually you the directors rotate, so you're the person that is in charge of the integrity of the character and the yeah. story. So for me as JT, for example, I would get similar storylines early on in the early being frustrated, yelling at him, you know, saying, don't go meet Catherine and all this stuff. And for directors coming in, it's the first time they're hearing me do this. But in the arc of the series, tracking my character's arc, I know this is the fifth time I'm giving him this speech. So mm -hmm. that's going to make a difference, whether it's the first or the fifth time. And knowing that and knowing what that requires, 
I'm going to make choices based on that and be ready to play, but make the choice I want to choose or the instincts that I have and the choices that I've worked on, put them out there first. And if they don't work, then we kind of roll with it. Or the director wants something different. Like I did, um, uh, uh, what's called a show called life on Mars, right? It was the first time I worked with that director, Gary Fleeter, that directed Life Unexpected and Beauty and the Beast. And he mm -hmm. directed this episode. They were redoing the pilot. And most of my scene, most of my of my scene was with Jason O'Mara. Um, Harvey Keitel and Michael Imperioli were in it, but I didn't really work with them one on one other than them roughing me up and, you know, taking me out in handcuffs and stuff. But basically, we did this scene over and over. Right where I hold the gun to him and um, I'm threatening him. I'm going to shoot him. He wants to talk me down from shooting him. And I did it with as much pathos and vulnerability and, you know, trying to make this disturbing character I was playing, mm -hmm. you know, sympathetic, you know, cause that's my goal. It's like, if you can make a character that's kidnapped people and, and, you know, committed crime sympathetic, then, I think you've achieved something as an actor, yeah. but you've also made him a little creepier because if he's really that pathetic, then, you know, that, you know, but whatever, I don't think he's pathetic. I just think he, he is protecting himself and, and he's, he's coming from a, I'm not judging his perspective. So that's where it came from. I came as a vulnerable, you know, beat upon, um, you know, person who's had a bad life and is trying to find love and is trying to find a better life. Um, and like for that character, not to make me shoot him. Don't make me do it. Don't make me, you're making me do this. I don't want to do this. I'm not a killer, you know? Um, and then we did those takes all day. And then the final take we got, it was like my close up. Gary was like, you know what? just have fun with this like you know try to find i think he's having fun like try to see if you can have fun as the character and there may be some places to laugh and really like laugh at the other character's expense right you know um we got the other stuff that's in there it's in the can and so I did that and I was laughing and I was like, you, you don't make me, you know, like, and I'm like doing all these lines and really having fun with it. Like as a crazy character until I get like knocked over and, you know, beat the crap out of, but, um, really had fun with it. And he wound up as a good director and editor do cutting both together. Wow. So he chose a laugh yeah. here or there. He chose like, and you know, he chose the vulnerable stuff back and forth. You know, he probably used the laugh ones a little more because that's where he wanted the character to go. But mm -hmm. he went there on my, on my time. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's like you get in a, a situation like that where you have your choices, you, you're playing out your choices and you've, you've totally like tapped the tank for those choices. You know, that's why like Kubrick and, um, I think Nolan does a lot of takes and uh, um, David Fincher, they do like, you know, anywhere from 20 to 40 takes of things. And yeah. 
somewhere in the 10 to 15, you start getting bored and fed up and sounding like you're acting. And then probably in the 15 to 25, you start finding new stuff and getting all the bullshit out of the way. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, in most TV, you don't have time to do that. You do like two or three takes for every yep. shot and then you move on. So you wing it. That's very cool. Yeah. Um, for the sake of others, I think we should wrap it up. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I want to ask you a lot more questions. So uh, please come back and uh, maybe part eight, maybe, <laughs> part eight maybe, of the series. Uh, yeah, maybe I can have uh, you, uh, you and Tim uh, come by together so we can. Oh, yeah, uh, that'd be awesome. Talk shop. That would be great. Yeah. Um, if you had to, uh, you know, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and talk to uh, to a young uh, acting version of yourself and give one piece of acting advice, what would that be? Oh, one again, one piece of acting I'm advice. Hey, hey. Um, I now I feel like I'm watching a series called Dark. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but mm -hmm. it's a really amazing German series on Netflix. Um, uh, you could watch it. I think you watch it with subtitles, but we're watching it dubbed. It is. It's just if you like sci-fi and and time. I you do. know, uh, philosophy and life and, you know, the circle of life and time. And it, it's a good show for that. I don't want to tell you too much, but um, I feel like, and this might give a hint about what the series is about, but I feel like if I gave my own self-advice, then right. something would have changed and I wouldn't uh, have had the path that I've had. So um, I think with uh, giving other people advice um you know in in an alternate <laughs> in an alternate uh um version of myself or other young actors um well if it was myself i would say just try to read more read more plays uh read more books i'm a slow reader so it's it's a definitely a hurdle that is but when i have to read a book i do it's just when I don't have to, I just read scripts and magazine articles. And, you know, yeah. I find myself reading shorter stuff. I, I like writing, but I've only written short films and poetry. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm a very, I don't know if it's my attention or my patience, but um, I would also just, I would say, um, Be more prepared. Um, one of my acting teachers in undergrad, uh, again, Gene Lesser, was like, you will get the opportunities. It's not necessarily luck. It's timing and luck, right? So um, the luck is an audition, a role, a situation crossing your path at the right time, right? Um, someone said like destiny and luck, or I, I think there's an expression like that where destiny and luck meet, um, but or preparedness and luck, um, destiny is where preparedness and luck meet. Um, I, I would say that I had several, even in this 
even the, in the career I've had, um, I've had several opportunities that I wasn't either as prepared as I should have been or didn't seize the moment as much as I, I can. And I've done that as an adult, as a, you know, 30, 40 something, but these are some of the things in my 20s uh, in the early 30s, honestly, that had I had that opportunity now, um, I guess I would know how to be prepared, but, and Google would have been around, so I would have been much more able to get a, a full scope and YouTube and all that stuff, full scope of what I needed to do to be prepared. But in today's day and age, there's no excuse not to be prepared or ready for something. And it's unfortunate if you get the opportunity too early, but just know and try to recognize the, the opportunities when they come, because when you haven't gotten a lot of opportunities, you don't know how often they're gonna come after that, right? You know, appreciating when I've been a series regular, you know, that that's not a normal thing to be multiple series regular. Some people do it, but it's something that I feel like, you know, to appreciate and enjoy when you are, which I was able, much more able to do in Beauty and the Beast in the latter half of the series than I was with Life Unexpected, right? Um, yep. So, you know, I think you can never be over-prepared. There are some things, some scripts where I feel instinctually they come to me quicker or dialogue that comes to me quicker. So I don't want to, as my teacher used to say, ground it into a fine powder. You know, yeah. it's not a medicine that I'm trying to ground into powder. It's, you know, you're crafting, it, right? So each entity is its own thing. Each piece of rock isn't the sculpture until you find what it is underneath, right? I think Martin Landau at the studio used to say that. It's like, you know, it's always the sculpture. It's just a rock now. And there's something underneath that you just have to find. Um, and the other thing is, if you're prepared, another Martin Landauism, um, but if you're prepared, um, you shouldn't be afraid to drown. Acting is diving in and knowing that you're going to be able to swim to the surface. Yeah. Um, but trusting that you're not going to drown. Um, yeah. And again, it's only acting. What are you going to be embarrassed afterwards? What's the worst thing that could happen, right? Yeah. You do yeah. it again, do take two, or you embarrass yourself and you redeem yourself the next time, you know? You learn mm -hmm. a lesson. There's a lesson to be learned everywhere. So, yeah, be prepared and trust yourself. Perfect. Well, listen, uh, I, I think this the the fiftieth uh, interview is is kind of a nice uh, microcosm of where the show is. It's the ability to get really deep and talk to really talented, interesting people who want to share, and that's what I got out of this one. So I, I'm really, really, really happy. And we beat uh, beat uh, Tim's time in terms of the length of the interview. I so. know. I'm competitive. You know, Tim, that's that's why I wanted to mention that. I'm a Boston Red Sox fan and I'm a Mets fan. 
he's got a couple more championships than me in the past few years, but I'll always have 86 over him. I know, and you also have it over us, but we're not going to talk about that. Um, well, that's <laughs> true, but we didn't win the World Series after that. I know. Listen, you, you, you and Tim are not, you know, the Boston Red Sox and Mets. They're not natural kind of, uh, you know, uh, natural enemies. So it's not, it's not no. like you're a Yankees fan, at least. So. No, my, I, you know, back when the Yankees sucked, I used to go and root for them. Um, when the Mets and them weren't as rivalrous because of the in, the Subway Series and interleague stuff, when that happened, that started being like a headbutting thing. Yeah. But um, my wife is a Red Sox fan. And I'm a Mets fan, so together we could root against the Yankees. That's true. That's yeah. made in that works. Yeah, I have um, one of my really close uh, friends. They they live uh, close to the uh, to the Mets. Uh, to the is it still called the Shea Stadium? Or is is it changed? City now? Field, City Field now. Sure. It's still there. Yeah. So I, I because again the uh, the I'm a, I'm a huge tennis nut. So uh, the uh, you know yeah, US so, but you know, they're they're big Mets fan, and they come out to Chicago, and uh, sometimes we go to see Brewers uh, games yeah. uh, because we're close by. And yeah. he would uh, he would, and they were playing the Mets were playing the Brewers. So the kids got in, and one of the kids uh, he's wearing a uh, Brewers uh, kind of a jersey, and then yeah. he's wearing a Mets uh, a Mets thing underneath, and then he comes out and he's like, they scored, <laughs> I'm buttoning back up. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, you said you're a tennis fan. I'm a tennis fan. Yeah. You ever read the book, The Inner Game of Tennis? No. Who is it by? Uh, uh, Timothy Galway. Okay. T A L W A Y. Um, I was one of my acting teachers had me read that and substitute acting for tennis, even though I like tennis as well. My yeah. wife and I play. Um, it's it's a really interesting book to read for the psychology of sports but also the psychology of approaching approaching the execution of anything like yeah. <laughs> technique etc you study all these techniques and then you have to go do them and you can't like like yeah be in the 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 studying while you're executing it. you have to leave all that behind and so it's a it's an awesome book for a tennis player but also for actors um, to read and to kind of help them get out of their own way. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Again, you know, uh, I, I've noticed that and I've talked to uh, to my uh, tennis coach about it is when you're there playing a match, you cannot be focused on your footwork. You cannot be focused on your forehand. You have yeah. to be playing. So, you know, there is training and then there is playing and you have to yeah. be in that moment. So it's all completely directly appropriate to acting. I completely agree with you. Yeah, it's a quick read too. It's uh, especially when I was younger and couldn't read as fast, <laughs> like in college. Yeah, I read it. It's like you know maybe 100, 200 pages or something. But it's a, it's definitely a quick read. But it's interesting because it's like takes you through this guy's, you know, approach to improving his tennis game. But at the yeah. same time, I'm likening it to acting, and anyone can liken it to whatever their sport or craft is. Um, and I think it works just as well. It's just about really the psychology of of trusting your instincts, doing the work to study, train, and either educate yourself, and then letting that go and trusting that it, it has become a part of you and will be there 
when you need it. Yeah, perfect. And yeah. I can't think of any better way to end that. Uh, so people, trust yourselves. Trust yourselves, <laughs> it'll be there when you need it. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I really, really enjoyed speaking with you. I appreciate it. And um, I couldn't have asked for a better guest for my 50th. 50, 50. 50. 50. 50. 50.